So we're going to have fun. In the first service, my mic popped right when I started talking about it, so I had everybody's attention. So we're going to have a lot of fun as we dig into this text. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 12. And if you need an outline, we have them. Um, So I'll give you some room to write some stuff, but I had a lot of people ask me questions about it because they, if you want more information, just send me an email and I'll send you the whole sermon. You can have it. Won't charge you. Anyways, let's start our time with prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for time to be in your house, to worship you, to study your word. Pray that you challenge us and also comfort us. This is an amazing passage we're looking at, and I pray that you just guide and direct my words in a way that honors you. And we pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Well, I want to start with um, showing you a picture of Mount St. Helens. In 1980, actually May 18th, on a Sunday in 1980, it erupted. And um, it's in the north or southwestern part of Washington State, right above Oregon. And um, 1,700 feet of that mountain was displaced. Some of you might remember it. If you're born after 1980, I'm sorry, you didn't live through it. But prior to 1980, a lot of us knew about this. But what's interesting when you study this, there was a ton of warning signs. There were geologists, hydrologists, volcanologists, that's not Star Wars, that's somebody that studies uh, volcanoes, Um, they'd studied this and they went to the government and said, hey, this thing is going to blow. And some of the signs, there was a bulge on the side of the mountain that it was a mile in diameter and it was growing six feet a day. And the scientists are saying, something's going to happen with this volcano. You need to get people out of here. The governor finally agreed to restricted access, and and they started getting thousands of people out of there. And over the two months prior to May, there was constant earthquakes and constant spewing of just gases, and they said, something is going wrong. Get out of here. So I want to show you the second picture, maybe. Oh, there it is. That's what the mountain looked like before. That's what it looked like afterwards. 1,700 feet blue. And in blue sideways, most of the scientists thought it was going to go up. And when it blew sideways, it was devastating. So let me just read something to you from the USGS, and it's the government officials that were studying this. It says, on morning, on the morning of May 18th, Mount St. Helens was shaken by an earthquake of 5.0 magnitude. The entire north side of the summit began to slide down the mountain. The giant landslide of rock and ice, one of the largest recorded in history, 
was followed and overtaken by an enormous explosion of steam and volcanic gases, which surged northward along the ground at high speeds. Some of the speeds were up to 400 miles an hour. The lateral blast destroyed and leveled everything, all the vegetation, for approximately 12 to 14 miles. Nothing lived in that. The vertical eruption of gas and ash was formed by a mushroom column over the volcano and went as high as 14 miles high. 57 people were killed. Thousands of animals Millions of fish, they were all killed by this eruption of Mount St. Helens. But there was numerous warnings. One geologist who was studying, two of his partners showed up, and he was about five miles from it, and he told the two partners, I think we're too close. You two go back. He stayed. They found his remains in the car that was just obliterated. There's nothing left of it. There was one old man. His name was Harry Truman, but he wasn't the president, okay? He just had the name. He owned a lodge on that side of the mountain. And what he told people was this, I'm staying. This mountain's my friend. It will never do anything like that. They didn't find the lodge. They didn't find him or the people staying there. Most of the people that died were people that did not heed to the warnings. Some of the scientists, though, were studying, thinking they were safe enough. And they all died. It was a warning sign. And the passage we're going to look at today is also what I'd say a warning sign. Jesus is going to talk to us about a sin that you never want to commit. We call it the unpardonable sin or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a little background of where we are in this text. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were in denial of Jesus' identity. There was overwhelming evidence by his teaching and his miracles The leaders went from disbelief to opposing Jesus. They gave credit to Satan for the work Jesus had done. Ultimately, their denial and opposition would lead them to crucify the Son of God. They committed the unpardonable sin. See, there's just no middle ground with Jesus. You are either with him or you're against him. So today's outline is this. I'll do it briefly and then we'll dig into it. The situation, then we're going to look at the accusation. We're going to look at then the condemnation, what Jesus says to, to the Pharisees. Then we're going to look at what we call the final judgment upon them. But then Jesus makes a unique transition. He talks about true transformation. And that's where I want to spend some time this morning. At the very end, I want to talk to you about, have you ever had that question in your mind? How do I know that I'm saved? 
When I was in high school, it seems like every Christian camp I went forward because I'm like, I want to make sure that I'm saved. And I would, I, I think I did it six different times. Finally, a man that was discipling me said, let's talk about the gospel. And he explained it clearly to me. I think he was tired of me going forward all the time. But have you ever asked yourself that question, how do I know without a doubt that I'm saved? The Bible has a lot to say about that, and we'll look at it. But we first have to go through some fun stuff on the unpardonable sin. It's called blaspheming, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. I called it the ultimate in unbelief, and it's warning, just like that volcano. There were so many warnings, and people denied it. So let's look at the situation. If you've got your Bibles, turn Matthew 12, and we're going to start in verse 22. And the situation is this. It's obvious Jesus has supernatural power, but the question is, is he the Messiah? The crowd in general discuss whether Jesus is the Messiah, but the Pharisees, unable to deny the power of Jesus, they question its source. So the Pharisees are saying, yeah, he did miracles, but we're going to talk about the source of that. So let's look at this account, and I entitled this The Healing, verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. This is very important to understanding what's going to happen in this text. Jesus heals. He, he exercises the demon. And he, he gives the man his sight and his ability to talk. And it was complete. It was instantly and it was complete. Not like these so-called healers today which is a scary thing. I always wonder, this is Dave Buck logic. If they really had the gift of healing, why aren't they in a hospital? He healed this man completely. And let me give you a little bit more background. In Matthew 12, 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. They were trying to figure out how to destroy Jesus. So their disposition and their actions is to discredit and destroy Jesus. Verse 23, the amazement. And all the people were amazed. In other words, they said this, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Oh man, that's not what the Pharisees wanted to hear. They, the Pharisees thought they were training the, the, all these people that, hey, this isn't Jesus, this isn't Messiah. And now they see this miracle, another miracle of his many, and they're going, hey, is this the son of David? Which is another way of saying, is this the promised Messiah, David's descendant? That's what the Old Testament talked about. And the people were amazed. So look at the accusation in verse 24. I call it the false explanation. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Belzebul, 
the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. See, the Pharisees don't deny the miracle, but instead attribute Jesus' power to Satan. The accusation that Jesus had formed some form of an alliance with Satan to carry out his work will naturally be lodged against the disciples as well. See, in Matthew 9, 32 and 34, there's another account where Jesus healed. And he says, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had cast, was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowd marveled, saying, we have never seen anything like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. See, the people had seen demon possession, but they hadn't seen anything like this. Jesus cured completely. Now, what I want you to understand in Jewish customs and Jewish law, if you were doing something magical or by the power of Satan, you were required or the people were required to stone that person. So what the Pharisees are doing is they're saying, let's blame Satan on this healing so we can get Jesus stoned. And if his disciples say they can do it, we can get them stoned. Now, I'm not talking about the stoning of marijuana. I'm talking about rocks. So this was a very serious charge that they're putting towards Jesus and his followers. Let's look at how Jesus answers it. I call it the condemnation. Jesus exposes the Pharisees' false accusation. And he gives four arguments for it. The first one is this. He responds with a war analogy. Look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts. Have you ever thought about that statement? Jesus knows your thoughts. Satan doesn't. Jesus does. He knows everything about you. He says, knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city on a house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Can you imagine you're in the audience and the Pharisees just made that bold declaration and Jesus says Satan would be divided against himself? I'm sure the audience was going, yeah, that doesn't make sense. See, if Satan wants to maintain rulership in this world, he will not work against himself by exercising a man that he had control over. That would be counterintuitive. See, the, the man is healed from blindness. He's enabled to speak. And he's freed from a demon. You need to understand this about Satan. Satan is the destroyer of life, not the giver of life. He's the father of lies. In John 8, 44, it says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand for truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's a murderer, destroyer. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says this, 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. John 10.10 says this, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, Jesus came, that you may have life and have it abundantly. Here's what you got to get in your mind. Jesus wants people, and when he gets them, he destroys them. Do you know why he destroys them? Because God created you and I. I've had people say to me, I'm just going to party in hell with my friends. Oh, no, you're not. Satan's going to get you, and then he wants to destroy you. I think we get this picture in our mind of this. We're at a ball game, and you've got this team over here and this team over here. And we're in the audience, and we're going to decide which team we're going to be on. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says there's Satan's team, and there's God's team, and there's no in-between. Now, some of you are saying, I wish I would have slept in today. This is a tough passage. And Jesus is going after the Pharisees. So the exorcism also reveals something else that you want to catch. Jesus healed this man completely. It is also a sign of the arrival of the kingdom has come. Jesus is coming. See, what's going on here, the leaders are denying all the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, that he would come and he would teach about how to have a relationship with the living God. He would save you and I from our sins. He would heal people. Everything that he is doing, the people are in amazement going, you sure this, this must be Jesus? And the Pharisees are saying, nope, don't want it to be Jesus. We'll say... It's by the prince of demons that he does this. No, that's not what Satan does. Satan destroys people. So the second argument is this. It focuses on the inconsistency. Look at verse 27 with me. And I've always said this, and the more you study the New Testament, you'll see it. Whenever the Pharisees debated Jesus, they lost. You would think by now they would go, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to be in trouble. Look at the second one. And if I cast out demons by Belzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judge. Here's the point. Friends and followers of the Pharisees said, we cast out demons. And the Pharisees said, that's a good thing. Now, Jesus casting out demons, and that's a bad thing? There's just a fallacy in their argument, and the people were catching it. Which leads to the third argument. The only logical answer is the power of God. In verse 28, Jesus says this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The only alternative is the Spirit of God. Notice it said the Spirit of God. Keep that in your mind as we go through this passage. 
The Spirit does the miracle through Jesus. So to me, it's just another introduction of the Trinity. God has the authority behind this power. Look, look at the fourth argument. Is this in verse 29 and 30? Its argument is Jesus is far greater than Satan. And you've seen that throughout the study in the book of Matthew. Verse 29 says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus has proved over and over again that he's more powerful than Satan. Christ entered Satan's house. He tied him up and he stole his property. What is he referring to there? You and I, we were born and we were sinners. Jesus went in and he grabbed you and he took you. And he still does it to this day. And we are blessed because he saved us. Christ enters the house. He ties him up. Satan had stole God's property and Jesus went in because we were children of wrath. And he says, I'm going to save you. See, there's only two teams, God and Satan, which we talked about. Anyone who is not seeking to deliver Jesus by default is Jesus' enemy. Look at the final judgment that Jesus says to these Pharisees. In verses 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. It's interesting, I started preparing the sermon about two and a half weeks ago, and a man came into my office and he said this, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. And I said, hmm, isn't it weird how God gives you those encounters when you're preparing something? And so I had to go through it with him and say, nope, you didn't do it. But let's take a look at this. I want you to also remember in verse 28, he said, the Spirit of God cast out the demon. Remember that as we go through. Now, Jesus goes on the offensive. And he says, anyone who is not seeking to live for Jesus is an enemy of Jesus. But he starts with every sin can be forgiven. And everybody in this room should go, oh, I'm so glad every sin can be forgiven. He's forgiven all your sins, all my sins. He's forgiven our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. If you're a follower of Christ. But look at this word. Let me define it for, me, for you. It's called blasphemy, and it's, it actually means this. Defiant irreverence. And it's a sin that can never be forgiven. Let's look at defiant. It's boldly resistant. It's the idea of bold opposition. In the Greek, it's the idea of defying the gods or, defa or taunting the gods, saying, 
I don't need you. It's a tough, tough word. It's actually saying, I'm in more control than you, God. I don't need you. Then the second part of the word is irreverence. It's it's this idea involves disrespect for the character, the deeds, the words, the law of God, and even the ministers of God. So the question remains, how is it then pardonable sin, or how are we supposed to understand the unpardonable sin, and and, and what does it mean to us is is the question you need to deal with. First of all, let the context guide us. Let's look at the Pharisees first, and then we'll look at the role of the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees, here's what they did. They, They were giving credit to Satan for what the Holy Spirit accomplished through Jesus. That's a big no-no. Second thing is they deny all the evidence about Jesus, that he is the one referred to in the Old Testament by his teaching and his miracles. You know, Jesus fulfilled every prophecy in the Old Testament when he came. These were Old Testament scholars, and they're going, it can't be him. It sure looks like him, but it can't be him. The third thing is there's a lack of any form of repentance by these leaders. Number four, they determine Jesus is not the Messiah. Their goal is to discredit Jesus and say it's through the power of Satan. So keep keep that in your mind. Here's an interesting statement I found. It says, to refuse Jesus is to have already decided against him. The tragedy is that many in the crowd will ultimately follow the persuasiveness of the religious leaders and join them in asking for Jesus' execution. So the crowd was saying, I think this is the Messiah. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 it's not, it's not, it's not. And they eventually believe him and they ask for the crucifixion of Jesus. See, the Old Testament regarded deliberate, defiant sin against God and His ordinances to be blasphemy. It's in Numbers chapter 15. The Jews considered such defiant sin as unforgivable. So the rejection of Jesus' ministry, and they validate it by saying it's done by Satan. Dr. Mike Wilkins stated this, by attributing the work and the power of the Spirit to Satan, the Pharisees are displaying the highest dishonor of God. To reject the evidence of exorcism and the healing and the miracles is to reject the kingdom offer for the forgiveness of sins. As long as the Pharisees continue to reject that evidence, they cannot enter the kingdom and receive forgiveness. So now we need to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. We know what the Pharisees did, but it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is what we're dealing with. The role of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, 7 through 9, it says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's for your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, the helper will come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning 
sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. When I was working in the secular world, I walked into an office with two other believers and there was a guy there that was very antagonistic against Christians. And he goes, oh, great. He goes, there's the Father, the Son, and he pointed at me and the Holy Spirit. And being a little bit of a smart aleck, I said, yeah, do you know what the Holy Spirit's role is? Is to convict you of your sins that you do. He shut up. Eventually, he asked me about that later. But that's the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit, let me give you about eight things on the Holy Spirit. The first one is this, is to convict the world of sin. The reason you come to know Christ is you're convicted of sin and you go, oh, Lord, I need your help. I need your salvation. That's the Holy Spirit doing it. The second thing is it convicts the world of righteousness. The third thing is it convicts the world of judgment. In a general sense, it restrains sin. Can you imagine this world if the Holy Spirit is not here? The Holy Spirit's actually restraining sin. The fifth thing, it regenerates, it transforms believers. We know that from Titus chapter 3. He, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. 1 Corinthians 6.19 the work of the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin and draws people to the Lord. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. In John 3, 6, it says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Spirit transforms you. The Holy Spirit is one that says, come have a relationship with God and His Son. To summarize, John Walbert, a famous theologian at Dallas Seminary, wrote this, attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God is the unpardonable sin. Isaiah 5.20 says this, and I think it's great for our era to remember this verse. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Don't you think we're living in a world like that? They're calling good bad, I mean, bad good and good bad. They got everything all messed up. So the question is, what about the believer? Christians have often tried to identify the sin as such things as murder, adultery, divorce, lying, and the list goes on. And individual believers have often wondered, have they committed that sin? I want to clarify to all of you, if you know Christ as your personal Savior, you haven't committed it. See, the unpardonable sin is if one rejects the Spirit of God and Jesus, there's no one else in the whole universe who can provide salvation for you. God's children, true believers, cannot commit the unpardonable sin. For all their sins were forgiven when they trusted Jesus Christ. So get this down. This is probably the best definition I could ponder and work on. The sin that can never be forgiven 
is the consistent lifelong refusal to bow to the Holy Spirit's conviction of sin and not to accept the forgiveness that Christ offered. Let me say that again. The sin that can never be forgiven is a consistent lifelong refusal to bow to the Holy Spirit conviction of sin and not to accept the forgiveness of Christ's offer. This is something that says, I'm not going to follow you, Christ. They've given up. Or they say, I'm going to party with my friends in hell. Jesus gives hopes to the true believers. Because this was a strong message to the crowd. And I'm sure that some of them were saying, whoa, what about, I, I do believe in you, Jesus. Jesus finishes off with giving some comfort. So, and, and I, I want to pose it this way. Have you ever asked yourself that question? How, how do I know if I'm saved? I'm going to give you nine attributes. There's probably over a hundred. I just want to hit nine big ones. But look at 33 through 37. The tree is known by their fruit. Listen to this, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruits good, or make the tree bad and its fruits bad. Or the tree is known by its fruits. Then he says, you brood of vipers. It's not a compliment to the Pharisees. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Let me give you four points on this and then we'll look at the application. Our, our words, according to Jesus, show the condition of our heart. That's why Jesus says that your words will either condemn us or justify us, since they reveal the true nature of our character. Number two, our words indicate what type of fruit we have. And we'll look at fruit in just a minute. You've got to examine to see if your fruit is good or bad. Number three, our actions must match our words. And the fourth thing, there's this great warning that you will give an account for every word you've ever said. So now let's just focus on the fruit. And I want you to do just a, a self-evaluation as we're going to conclude this. And I'm going to give you nine points on this. And it's, it's all around this question about, I always say, evaluate yourself all the time. I'm not saying about you're going to lose your salvation, but these are great indicators to say, ah, I know that I'm saved. They're just great indicators. The very first one is Jesus used by your fruits, and he used it in the plural, meaning multiple fruits. Now, the fruits we find are in Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23. It says, by your fruits, it starts with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. It's interesting the two bookends is love 
and self-control. I love the word in Greek and self-control. It's, it's this idea, do you, do you get a hold of yourself? Can you control yourself and not be a fool? To have self-control and love is the only way you can do the, the middle seven. Think about this. Do you have true joy? Joy is this inner peace that you know God. Second thing is, are you at peace with God? Third is, do you have patience? Yeah, now sometimes we're growing in our patience, right? Sometimes we can get impatient. How about kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness? You should be able to evaluate your life and say, hey, am I getting better at those? And if you are, oh, that's, that's a reaffirmation that you're walking with the Lord. Look at the second one. It's about knowing God. It, Christianity is not just knowing about God. It's about a relationship with him. I love the Old Testament. I love to read about men and women in the Old Testament that had a relationship with the living God. They knew God personally. And they walked with God. John 17, 3 says this, this is eternal life that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom I've sent. And the know is to have a relationship. The third thing is about his son. Do you know his son? Do you know the one that paid for all of your sins? Do you have a relationship with his son? Do you, do you look at his son when you're studying the New Testament and go, I want to be more like Jesus? And it should challenge you. And then when you go, oh, I want to do that. Number four, it's about dying to self. The Bible's clear. We have to deny ourselves and take up the cross. Are you becoming more humble? Humility. Are you becoming more self-sacrificing? Do you have a passion for repentance? Do you have a passion to give without getting any credit? That's number four. Number five, do you have sorrow over sin? Do you have sorrow over your sin? You know, we still sin. We're saved sinners. We still do dumb things. Do you, when you do it, do you go, oh, Lord, forgive me? Do you have sorrow over sin? Do you walk in obedience to the word? Oftentimes I get people in my office and they're asking questions and I go, let's, let's read what the Bible has to say about it. You don't want to hear what Dave Buck has to say about it. I'm going to mess you up. Let's talk about what the Word of God says. Do we go to the Word when we're making big decisions in life? It's the best thing to do. Do you have a burden for the lost? Now, oftentimes when people hear that, and I've heard it from the pulpit, I tend to think of somebody I don't know. But what about a relative or a good friend that just doesn't know Christ? Do you have a burden to share the truth with them? It's both and. 
I have relatives that aren't believers. I pray for them. Do you have a burden? Are you investing in another person's life? I love Timothy and Titus. It says, older men invest in younger men. Older women invest in younger women. That's called discipleship, and you knew I'd bring that in the sermon. Number nine, you speak the truth. John 8, 31 and 32 says this. If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These are just indicators, and there's so many more. But I always say to people, evaluate your life and see how you're doing. See how you're growing. How's God stretching you? Because there's nothing better to know that you're saved, right? There's nothing better to know that your sins were paid for. It's just to know you're on the right team. And, and if you've got questions about that and you're going, I don't know for sure, I'm going to be down here, some of the elders, some of the worship team, we would love to talk to you. I had a lady years ago ask me, she said, I don't know for sure, I'm just struggling with sin. I go, no, if you're struggling with sin, you're on the right team. Okay? Because that's the Holy Spirit saying, we've got to work on those sins, Right? So right after the song, if you want to come talk to any of us, we'll be right here. We had quite a few people come earlier, first service. And even if you just need prayer, come. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. It's a tough text. It's a text where Jesus confronted people that were claiming he was doing it through the power of Satan. And Lord, you condemn that. Lord, I pray that we go to you, we are drawn to you, and we, that we know you personally, and that we don't deny you. And Lord, I just thank you that you paid the ultimate price to save our souls. Help us to be grateful people for that. Help us to fall more and more in love with you because we're going to spend eternity with you and we're grateful for that. And we'll give you the praise and glory for it. In your son's name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.